we've been considering the concept of oneness. In fact, we spent 10 sermons on that. And as we, here we are, thinking about the Lord's Supper, I was pondering, I was thinking to myself, there must be symbols of oneness even in this service itself. And so I want to take a look, closer look at that here this morning with you. And before we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful that the church has one foundation, and it's Jesus Christ. We're called in one hope, one faith, one baptism. And here we are together in one meal, a meal of oneness. Help us to see the full significance of it. Help us to see how it really can tie us together, not only with you, but with each other, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as I think of communion, I think of these as symbols of oneness. Because as we think of communion, we typically think of it as a meal. But I hope that by the time we are done here, that you will think of it as really a way to stay connected with our Savior. A way to stay connected, not only with a Savior, but someone who calls himself our bridegroom, our husband. And so as you look at John 14, we read it in the scripture reading time. It says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The context here we're dealing with is that Jesus has revealed not only the betrayal of Judas, but also that Peter would deny him. And so as you end John 13, you get into this section here where Jesus is saying, don't focus on that. Focus on the fact that, yes, your hearts are troubled. Do not let them be troubled, but actually believe in God and also in me. And I'm going to propose to you that this section here is a marriage proposal from Jesus. Because as we read it on, it says, In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. We like that phrase. I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there ye may be also. What's he saying? I am coming back. I've already made the preparations. And in the Greek language, it's, I am coming back. It's already underway. Things have already begun to go in that direction. And just as surely as the words are coming out of my mouth, it's a done deal. It's a promise that has a foundation that is firm, one that you can bank on, that I am coming back. It's called a futuristic present. In other words, it's present tense in the Greek, but it's saying the preparation's already begun for a future reality with you. And as I read that, I think to myself, huh, I wonder how they would have received that. Yes, they were troubled, and now Jesus is encouraging them. Don't focus on the fact of Judas betraying me, or Peter denying me, or you being scattered. Focus on the fact that I'm coming back. I will die, be resurrected, and I will return. But could there be more to it than that? In my Father's house, are many rooms. We like the mansion idea more. But in the first century, the idea of in my father's house are many rooms was a very promising marriage proposal. You say, how do you know that? Well, let's go on. You can find different books that describe the ancient custom, of especially the Jewish marriage custom. You can find some of it in our Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentaries. You can find some of it in it in commentators on the ancient Near East. You can find it. Beth Moore had a book that went through some of it. I've taken and I've looked from various sources and, and put it into just a brief outline form, mainly because sometimes they differ 
on a couple of customs. And so I'm going to try to include all of those customs. And by the time we look at those, you're going to see clearly that not only was this a meal, it was an invitation for you to be there at the marriage. And so we find the steps in the marriage where you first would have a formal request or a, for the bride. This would usher in the time of betrothal. Sometimes a family friend would go and initiate that process. And then eventually the father and fa they would come up with terms of the betrothal, dowry and all of that. So that's the first stage is the request for a bride, a betrothal period. That's where Mary and Joseph had the issue there. Remember that? They had this betrothal period and it seemed almost as if Mary was being unfaithful. Very serious. It's a, it's a very serious period of time. It's a commitment time. Well, then that goes into a wedding time. So the betrothal period leads up to a wedding and then the wedding, eventually you have different process in the wedding, but eventually you have a supper after the pronouncement of marriage. So you go from betrothal to wedding time to supper time. Supper time. We're going to tie that one back over to here later on. And so you can imagine the groom. There he is, maybe, <laughs> maybe not as old as we were when we got married. Maybe, maybe, maybe he was. Maybe we were young. I was 19. But there he is, and he sends a family friend to talk to a prospective bride. Maybe, maybe that would be the first time that she even knew this guy's interest. We don't know. Every situation was different. But there would be the promise from the groom to that lady. So the family friend would come, would negotiate with the prospective family. The friend would eventually go back and tell the groom and the father, hey, she's all right with considering it. And then the friend, the groom, and the father would go and arrange the bride price with the groom meeting the bride. Sometimes for the very first time. Remember stories like this in the Bible? Remember Isaac? Yeah, this is a story where you find a family friend goes, represents the family, takes some, some wealth with him, and it gets her to, unusually, to come back with him. But back in Jesus' day, we find it progressed to more of a format like this where the friend and the groom and the father would all go meet the bride, settle the bride price, and that might be the first time he had ever seen her and she had ever seen him. Some cases you can imagine, love at first sight. Other cases, a negotiation, a transaction type thinking. Uh, but nonetheless, that would be the, the first meeting there. And so John 14, does it have any of those elements there? Has Jesus had a family friend come and prepare the way for him to approach his bride? John the Baptist, the Elijah message, right? Drawing hearts of the fathers to their sons and the sons to their fathers. And so we find he has come with that message. He's prepared the way. He's called his church to repentance. And then he's pointed them all to Jesus, has he not? So John the Baptist has said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so a friend has come. In fact, a series of friends in the Old Testament had prepared the way for Jesus to come to his bride. Well, do we find record of the groom, the father, and in our case, the Holy Spirit, all coming to the bride and approaching the human race? We find it in the birth of Jesus. We find it in the very ministry of Jesus. We find it all the way down to this aspect as well. And then to the death on the cross, where you find he cries out, Father, forgive them. And so you've got the Father there, the Son there, and the Holy Spirit convicting people that surely this was the Son of God. So all the way through 
the ministry of Jesus. You find that grooming process, if you will. Christ approaching his bride taking place. We know it wasn't the first time he had seen her. In fact, in the Old Testament, he describes his prospective bride as, well, I didn't choose you because you were the best, or you were the most numerous, or you're the strongest nation in the world of Israel, right? He, he didn't choose her because of that. He chose her because he loved her. And so we find some parallels there. So if we have the parallels, then we could see them more clearly in John 14. Main ideas are there in the ministry of Jesus, but John 14 is a marriage proposal because when that bridegroom would, would leave after they had talked, a friend, father, and then the, the prospective groom would talk to that prospective bride, they would leave. They would have negotiated the bride price. They would leave. And then there would be a betrothal period that would enter into. And hopefully by the time that groom left, though, he would say something like this. I'm going to my father's house. Maybe there was lots of rooms there. Maybe there was only one extra room that they were going to share. I'm going to my father's house. There's rooms there. One of them is going to be just for you and for me once we get married. At the end of the betrothal period, I'm going to be back to take you there. There would be some kind of promise to her before he left with his father and the family friend after the bride price had been agreed upon. When they went into that betrothal period, there would be a promise of a return to take her there. And so, the first century home then, if the prospect came to you and said, well, we got a little uh, shed out back, would that be a very beneficial place to live? Uh, promising prospect. Notice Jesus didn't say that. He said, in my father's house are many rooms. So most families had a home that had a courtyard, especially in Jerusalem. The living space would have been about 25 to 35 square feet. Imagine that. <clears throat> Imagine that. Beginning your family in a space, 25 to 35 square feet. Yeah, you got that courtyard. Yeah, your animals can go out there at night, but you're still in this sardine-type situation. And they slept on the floor. Kind of like when you get those tents, you know, and those tents, they say uh, they sleep eight, and they show, you look at the diagram of that, that octagon-shaped tent, and it, they're all just in there. Sorry, guys, uh, we, we live in complete luxury in America. Uh, you think about the average first-century home in Jerusalem, you're looking at something like this. So you've got this courtyard here, and look at this little room here. You can't hardly see it's dark in there. Some of them didn't even have windows, but if you notice, they built in a shelf over here. They've stuck some, some earthen vessels there. There's a table here. <coughs> There's another earthen vessel here. They've got all of their possessions right there in that little 25 to 35 and sometimes 100 square foot little room. And so when a groom would say, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house, Typically, it would be, well, I've built on another room like this, or we're going to have to make room, put a curtain up or something. That would be the typical poor family in Jerusalem. So when he says, in my father's house are many rooms, he is saying, my dad, I, we have the house for you. You read Revelation 21, you know what he's talking about now, don't you? This is a place where there's room for everybody. This is a place that's saying, I have gone and I have pulled out all the stops to let you know that I have the place for you in the kingdom. 
a rich source of information in the excavation of old, the old Jewish quarter. There's a lot of information. It says one large house they located was of some 200 square yards in size. So you know size houses these days. 200 square yards in size. This one had a central courtyard where three cooking ovens and a water cistern were found. Large niches were set in some of the walls, contained broken pottery, and must have been cupboards. So they had cupboards. So imagine this huge house, courtyard in the middle, and in those homes they even had cupboards. This is one excavation. Traces of mosaic floors and plastered walls give an idea of the beauty of this house. I mean, the mosaic floors, if you compare it to the Roman system, uh, some of the Romans had these dacas, these, these country homes, and they'd have these mosaics all over their floors, these, these, these Roman officers and all of that. And so here's, they're finding somebody who's quite wealthy in Jerusalem. And as they've dug this up, they find these mosaic floors, these plastered walls, beautiful, beautiful house. And there were several rooms off the courtyard, perhaps as many as ten. Many rooms. And so when they do these digs, they come across something like this, and they say, this was a rich person with many rooms. Now, read that back into that text there. And so you have Jesus saying, in my Father's house are many rooms. Their earthly compa comparison is, it's like saying, I have a wedding proposal for you that you just cannot resist. Materially, and as he goes on, we know that spiritually, they, we would be foolish to resist it as well. So the groom, during that betrothal period, if he said, I have a house with many rooms, that we're going to have one whole room for ourselves, well, he would begin decorating or, or even building that room, depending on how much room his dad had. He would somehow give, get an idea of her favorite foods, maybe her colors that she liked, whatever. But by the time the betrothal period was over with, he would have a place prepared that he knew that she would feel welcome in. And during that first year of marriage, they would have that room all to themselves. You know what happens in the second year. The kids start coming. Okay, So they would have that place prepared for them, just for the two of them in that first year of marriage. I remember our first home that we had, 123 Daisy Lane in Milo Academy. And I remember making the proposal in the form of a poem, and I had, at the end of each line, I had a, a word, will you marry me? And so she had to read this poem carefully, and at the end of each line, it would give her my question that I was going to ask her. And I didn't have a whole lot. So I was working, back then it was $9 an hour, so I paid my rent, I had a few hundred left, and so I was trying to gather little things here and there, during that engagement period, or betrothal, if you will, to just get a place that I felt like she'd be thankful to live in. <laughs> I remember the second-hand furniture and the, the, uh, the things that people would give me. And I still remember, remember this, uh, this couch with a pink covering that a, a mouse died underneath later on. But, but I just remember getting stuff that somebody had smoked in. or, or what, I didn't have a lot of money, but I did the best I could. And whatever somebody gave me, I, I just graciously said, oh, thank you. And I, and I, and I tried to make it look nice, and, and there was a mantle in there, so I put a few things that they gave me over there and a piece of furniture here and there. It was a mi mixed-matched whole setup there. But that was our home. And I still remember when the, when, when the new, the brand-new bed came. I just thought, wow, you know, this is the newest thing in the whole house. 
And so that thing got shoved into this little bedroom there, and, and I, somebody gave, me a carp gave us a carpet, and so we laid that down. The furniture just began to appear here and there, but it was finally ready. It was ready before the marriage took place. And after that, that was our home. One, two, three, Daisy Lane. The excitement there. Just meager possessions, and yet we were together. That's really all that matters. Isn't that really all that matters? Even if Jesus would propose to us and say, I've got a room in my father's house, by the way. We're sharing it with my father, and we've got to draw a curtain up there. And, 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 and actually, we, in fact, we have it divided in four. I would be happy there with Jesus. I wouldn't care if he had the pearly gates and the, and the gold, everything. And I wouldn't care anything about that if it's just him and I. Him and us. His whole church family there together. Who really cares about the, the gold and the silver and everything? And so during that betrothal period, here Jesus is. We, we talk about, some of you talk about what kind of mansion you like or what kind of country home you want. Or whatever it is, he's, he's, he knows exactly what you want and what you need, actually, and what you're really going to enjoy in eternity, and he's preparing it right now. And so are we faithful to him during, the, during this betrothal period that's going on right now, that he's preparing for us, that place? And so waiting time comes, and this is what I really like. Here I am right now, here today, committed to Jesus, saying, I am your betrothed, I am part of your bride, the church. I want to remain faithful to you, but I'm looking forward to that wedding time. I'm looking forward to this because the groom would leave that father's house, regardless of how extravagant the house was, he would leave it fully dressed splendidly, and some say even with a crown, looking like a king coming for his bride. Some robes that were fancy, and I don't think people would leave this guy just to walk on his own, in fact, as I looked at the literature, they would have a procession. They'd follow him all the way from his father's house to his bride's house where there would be a celebration. And along the way, they'd shout out, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And so she would hear these shouts as he got closer and closer to that wedding. Friends would gather around the groom as he approached the bride's home. So you can imagine this all happening, this procession. And the immediate friends are right there and now she's, meanwhile, inside, preparing herself. Now there's uh, bathing treatment, lotions, all, they lay this all kinds of stuff about this. But nonetheless, she has prepared herself. She's dressed like a queen for that day. Family wealth is all spread out on her. We find that description in Revelation. Bride adorned for her husband. It's, it's a wedding description in Revelation. And so there she is, prepared as well. She's got her dowry that has been given as a promise to her by her betrothed on her neck. Her hair is braided, and this would be the last time, at least in that culture, society would see her hair. Only her husband would be able to see that uncovered from that point on. She'd be presented to the groom. Can you imagine that? They've looked forward to this all during the betrothal period. If you're married or you know somebody who has been married, you know the excitement of that day. So there they are, presented. Her family presenting her to the groom. They proceed up and down every street. Here they are, dressed like kings and queens. I remember seeing just recently a, a wedding from Iraq area, like Baghdad, where they were saying they're still celebrating, they're still, they're still having weddings there in that city, they're still trying to have joy in that city amidst all the war. And so imagine that custom way back then, where there they were, introduced, 
and there they are going up and down every street of that little village or town. People are throwing wheat or barley or something, something of grain value at them. And meanwhile, the wedding party is gathering all that up because they're going to make it into cakes and things for the guests to eat. Imagine that joyous time. They get to the groom's house, that father's house that's been prepared, and then we find that they're, they're separated there for a brief period of time. She's then, they make sure that she's impeccably dressed. He's waiting outside underneath his canopy there, and he eventually comes to the point where he makes a promise to her. He says, I'm going to protect you, in essence, provide for you, care for you always. They then take a cup of juice, and they both drink out of that cup. Then they place it on the ground, and it's stepped upon, symbolizing that no one else will ever drink from that cup. I will never have any other but you. Powerful symbolism here, isn't it? I'm not saying it's right out of the Bible, but it happened. It's right there. Some of it's out of the Bible. The bridegroom cometh, the house prepared, eventually Jesus coming. There is no other after Jesus comes, is there? If you have some other, you might want to settle that between now and the time Jesus comes because at that point, there is no other. Nothing separates us then. And so then the rabbi or the head man of the village would pronounce a blessing, which is kind of like the one in Genesis, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Revelation has the same type of parallel. Let him who is holy be holy still. Let whom is unjust be unjust still. I mean, powerful. We will be with him forever. Then they went to the bridal chamber. The honeymoon would begin. Eventually, though, after they went back to the father's house, if the house wasn't extravagant, that groom would get up enough wealth, whatever he could earn, and he would buy another piece of land and build another house. So, are we experiencing this here spiritually today? When Jesus returns, he said, I prepared a place for you I go to prepare a place for you. I am coming back. It's a done deal. You have the deposit of the Holy Spirit in your lives as a down payment, a dowry, if you will. Are there many rooms in our Father's house? Is there any other richer than the creator of this universe? There is no other. And who can imagine a father supplying anything more than our Father in heaven for the wedding? Everything will be supplied. Everything will be... <laughs> perfect, down to the smallest detail. Will we, will we enjoy the supper with him? Yeah, we will. We will have that supper time. When that new Jerusalem comes on down like a bride adorned for her husband, will we make homes here in this earth? Has he purchased another piece of land in this universe with his blood? He could have it settle anywhere else in the universe, but he has purchased this world with his blood, a provision of eternal value. And he's saying, now we're going to have a country home here as well. My temple will come down. But Isaiah mentions them building homes and inhabiting them. Beautiful. He'll give us a very place of our own where we'll be with him forever. And so that's why Revelation 19, and that's why the Lord's Supper, point out that these things are just merely symbols pointing us forward to that reality. Marriage is a symbol of oneness. Since we are betrothed and promised to Jesus, then we have entered into a relationship of oneness. The thing we have to do now is remain faithful because soon there's a sound of a great multitude as a sound of many waters, as a sound of strong thunders saying, Hallelujah, 
for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and we will give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. At this point, when this happens, it's ready. We are there. And his wife has prepared herself. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Linked in Jesus. And he said to me, Right, blessed are those who have been called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Have you and I been called to the marriage supper? Clear in Revelation we have. Then why not remember that as often as we do these things? That this is a symbol that Jesus will have no other. He says, the fruit of that vine, I will not drink it again. He drank it, drunk it once with us. And it's almost like he put the cup down and said no other at that point. We know that's not exactly the chronology we want to think about, but that's in essence what he said. I will have no other. Will you have no other? So do we put on the red and garment of Christ? Have we done that? Have you chosen to stay true to Jesus? If you have committed to him, have you chosen to stay true to him no matter what? Are you willing to let go of all these other little things in this world that are really not worth it? Because if you don't, then you're not going to welcome him when he comes. I want to be one of the ones who welcomes him and says, Lord, I don't care what this world has to offer. You are what matter to me. And after that, we're going to be with him for the great consummation, the supper. Some people say that thousand year just spending time just with him, that honeymoon, if you will, that's a thousand years with Christ. And then we return to the world. It's made new. And everything we could ever dreamed of, ever dreamed of, or thought imaginable will be there for us. And so, the Bible says, come, drink the water of life freely. It says the spirit and the bride say, come. It says all of us who really want to be there, we can come and we can be there. And so our goal then should be remembering our commitment to Jesus Christ until he does come. I don't know when it's going to be. I'm just taking it one day at a time. I'm saying today, today until he comes. I'm going to be committed to him today until he comes. Some of you may be here today and you have not made that commitment to him. You say, well, sounds good. What do you really have to lose? Why not just say to him, Lord, you know my life. You know where I've been. Take control of my life. I commit myself to you. And then those of us who have committed ourselves say, I'm going to recommit my life to you today so that I can be there with you forever. And so let's remember and commit ourselves to him until he comes. Because the Lord's Supper, it says they were eating and Jesus took the bread and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, this is my body. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink all of it. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for their remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He has a total commitment to us. Do we have a total commitment to him? So in my Father's kingdom, it was his last drink as far as with his disciples there. Remember they rushed him from place to place, eventually crucify him. And each time we drink of this, it's saying, Lord, I remember what you did for me. I remember that promise you made for me. I'm looking forward to the great supper with you. Let's remain connected to him. I'm going to go ahead and close there. So we have symbols of oneness today. We have the foot washing. 
that is there to say, Lord, I've committed my heart to you. There's some things I need to have washed. I am your bride. Wash me, cleanse me. I am your follower. Wash me. And then, and then there is the emblems, the bread and the juice. It says, not only have you washed me, but now I'm looking forward to your coming where we will eat this again in your Father's house, in your kingdom. So we do practice open communion. If you feel impressed to partake with us here today, if you are committed to Jesus, we invite you to partake of this. We do have in your bulletin listed there some, fam- some ways that you can participate even with your family. We have a children's story as you look in there that will be in room one for the singing. There will be some stories for the kids. So parents, if you want to leave your kids there, if they're not quite old enough to understand what this means, that's something you can have for them. Women will be in Hinton Hall East for the foot washing, asking Jesus to cleanse them. Families, Hinton Hall West. Men, we're going to be in down in room four. And then once again, the children's story and the song time in room number one. Take these symbols as an opportunity to say, Lord, cleanse me. Make me one with you. If there's somebody else that you have a problem with or a concern that you've had in the past, say, Lord, make me one with them. Maybe even wash their feet if you need to. But have that oneness with him through the foot washing. And then when we come back, we will continue that thought. Let's pray together. Father, we lift up our hearts to you, trusting that you have done everything you can to prepare a beautiful place for us. And Jesus said, your house has many rooms. Not only plenty of room for each one of us, but provisions made so that we would all be happy, truly happy, truly peaceful there with you forever. Lord, we don't want anything to separate us from you. So as we go through the foot washing experience, help us to allow anything that we're clinging to, anything that would stand between us to just be washed away. And then when we come back, help us to partake with the joy of salvation that says, Lord, thank you that you're coming soon. Thank you that soon we will see you again and you will drink this fruit of the vine with us in your Father's kingdom. Help us to see these as symbols of oneness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We will disperse at this time and separate for foot washing. When we're done, we will come.